Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast back after a brief absence and no episode went out on Sunday following the tragic killing of David Amos. My name's Corey Hazelhurst. After the music, you're going to hear our 300th episode. It's the first of a number we're going to be recording about COP26. This time we are recording with regular Shaz Rahman. Hope you enjoy it. This one in particular focuses on the IPCC report into climate change, which was released over the summer. report came out Shaz I suppose it was in August in the middle of a number of stories related to the climate crisis that we've Steve and I sort of touched on a few weeks ago so we saw massive heat waves Patrick last week was talking about the hurricanes that have taken place in America we've seen floods in Germany um, as well so the report when it came out really seemed to be quite current and of the moment and it's um, it's been seven years in the making hasn't it but what exactly is the intergovernmental panel on climate change? Yeah, so the IPCC is a collection of global scientists who aren't necessarily conducting research themselves in this report, but are collating lots of other studies over trends and decades and decades worth of research. So what they're doing is they're pl- plotting out scenarios and looking at the data and seeing what is what may happen, what might not happen. And the tone has changed significantly from last time out, uh, is that Climate change is definitely happening and we are seeing it with our eyes. Uh, one of the criticisms of the report is that uh, it's not actually uh, damning enough in some ways because it's happened a bit earlier than, this, than the previous IPCC report thought it was going to happen. So that's that, that change of tone is important that before it was like it's a theory that has lots of models that say it's going to happen, but it might not happen in that way. But actually, it's happening, and it's happening worse than they predicted in the previous models. And then the second thing uh, from the note that the IPCC are reporting is that some effects are long-term for humanity. Uh, melting ice caps, that you can't stop that at this point. We are past the point of no return in some ways, and many people will suffer and are suffering. Uh, but the third point which is maybe optimistic depending on how you look at it is that we don't have to have climate armageddon like it isn't too late yet if we carry on as we are it will be but uh, whilst it doesn't talk about the politics of it on this stage there are uh, there are later so the report that was released in august was the physical science basis so that's the data the second and third parts will talk about the human impact as to what humanity can do to avert the worst case scenario and how governments need to act. So at the moment, we only have data modeling saying what's gonna happen. And they provided a few different scenarios of uh, temperature rises and uh, they go from least likely to likely, as in they give a version of 
low emissions, which they don't believe is going to happen, and they merge with high emissions, which they don't think is going to happen. But if you have, but either way, uh, if nothing happens from governments, then it's game over for humanity by 2100s. It's not fun reading, but it's it's very important. And that, I mean, usually we've tried to end our episodes on existential despair, but actually if we <laughs> did that, it'd be a very short episode. Yes. This is the sixth report because um, I think there's one that comes out every seven years or so. And yes. it put, as you say, it's a whole chunk of stuff that's all together. So there's 14,000 peer review studies and the two drafts of the report received 74,849 comments from experts, which is slightly mind-blowing. And then it's put together with people from scientists from 66 countries, but reviewed by people from 195 countries. So when we look at sort of COP26, I suppose the idea is that the conclusions in here will mean that policymakers will then work out how to avoid humanity being extinct by 2100. Um, I suppose if you say that the report that we're going to talk about maybe isn't the full report because the full report is 13,000 pages or something, isn't it? Which, you know, we, we try and do the due diligence, but 13,000 pages is a, is a lot of pages. I, we I were cheated. climate scientists. We wouldn't understand a lot of it. That's true. So I, I cheated. I read the 42-page summary for policymakers. To go on to then what you said about the first thing, Shaz. So there's lots of things it says sort of certainly happening, virtually happening, high confidence level happening. One of them is that climate change is man-made. Um, which you'd think isn't terribly controversial, really. Is this How come it's taken so long for that comment to be made in this sort of report? The, the truth behind uh, that question is that actually, like, uh, confidence intervals when it comes to data, science, can be very difficult to get right. Uh, and when you are dealing with something as wide-ranging, uh, and and then as important as uh, climate change, it's one of those things where you definitely do want to get it get it right. It, in, in an ideal world, what you probably want to happen is, um, you know, if somebody said, if the scientists turn around and say, well, actually, there's the risk that this might be happening, uh, but we don't know for certain that it is man-made. Like the lo- one of the logical things is to go, okay, well, let's mitigate that risk by you know doing all of these different actions. But in practice, that that doesn't actually happen because governments aren't beholden necessarily to logic and long-term thinking and all of these different things that we will have discussed at some point on the podcast. Actions don't happen in that kind of way, which means you end up with like organizations and research having to kind of like couch themselves in certain terms and make things very, very clear and having to back that up with data. But the problem is if you have to back things up with data is if you don't have enough data to say one, say for absolute certain one way or another, there's always that wriggle room. So the scientific consensus has been for, you know, a very long time that climate change is man-made, but until you have enough data to actually make that point, you can't say for certain because that's what good science is. You don't make statements that you cannot back up. Um, and so you end up with this odd odd situation uh, where because the literature before this point didn't say, oh, it's 100% certain that it's, that it's man-made because that's what good science does. 
that you end up with people kind of going, oh, well, they're not certain, and you end up with, oh, well, they used to think that the, there was global cooling in the seventies, and, and all of that sort of sort of logic happening, and they go, and people just kind of latch on to what little doubt there is, um, despite the fact that it's quite clear what the trend is and what the actual evidence is going to show. Going to show. It's also happening as we speak. Yeah. Every other week, there is a climate-related disaster. Was it two weeks ago? New York subways were being flooded. Parts of part of Western Germany was landslided and flooded. So villages were completely destroyed. So, so like the scientists, I think, have always wanted to say this is as near certain as near certain can be. But now the, the political side of it has moved enough for the scientists to say this isn't just ninety nine percent probable. This is one hundred percent probable because. Look at the world around us as it's changing. The effects are much sooner than some of scientists had anticipated, but it's the same result that they came up with in the 80s and the 90s. One the, the really disturbing thing actually is looking at some of the graphs in some of the early bits of the report where you've got the the sort of simulated change in temperature between the year zero and now, where it spends about 1900 years bobbing up and down. In a, in a very straight line around about 0.1 degree sort of temperature change and then massively shoots up after 1970. And it's something like the in the 50 years since 1970, we've had the biggest increase in temperature in the 50 year period we've had in 2000 years. It really hit home just, OK, it's it's one degree in temperature it doesn't sound like a lot. But actually, when you look at it over that really long term, it's a massive amount. And as you say, Shaz, it's every other week you're seeing a story related to it. And just the, the first half of the report is just a catalogue of every single issue, isn't it, about glacier retreats, about rising sea levels, even changing seasons as well. Sort of every, every single knock-on effect that you can have. Yeah, because it's like since 2000, we've had... 18 of the 20 hottest years on record you know if you live in Nevada there may be lots of wealth there but you can't fight against the desert forever if you, uh, like parts of California have been in wildfire so this is one of the points that I think the, the report kind of touches on really well is that whilst these things have been predicted for a while the severity hasn't really been taken as serious as it needs to be. So those villages in Western Germany, they, they never thought that would happen to them. The, the wildfires in California, where millionaires have, have been basically have to abandon their home, they didn't think that would happen to them. They just thought it was something that poor people would have to deal with in the global south, for lack of a better word. And so actions happening now partly because rich countries have realised, well, we can't escape it. And if in a way we thought we would, we thought this problem was a 50 years away. So, you know, what good is my lovely four by four if it's floating down the road in a flood? Like people are, uh, more people are starting to realise that action needs to happen because it's more relevant to their lives. Whereas before it was people in Bangladesh might get flooded, but that won't happen here for 50 years and, and then I'll be dead so who cares that's the second moment of existential despair maybe we have to end on the third one but it's the it's even things like um 
I suppose, in, in the Netherlands, where having to think about the impact of rising sea levels in a country that I think we already below sea level, isn't it? So, it was built below sea level. So the, the sort of talking about, I think they talked about managed retreat, didn't they? Which is one of those euphemisms you don't really want to have to think about. Because if you think about what that means, it's absolutely terrifying, isn't it? It's sort of essentially having to evacuate a country. I feel like the, the, the sorts of discussions about like uh, what what what's going to happen to the Netherlands and the planning for the Netherlands is actually something that should be making much more of the, the overall discourse um, in terms of like um, like when, when we're talking about climate change simply because when you put it and actually outline what it is needs to happen to to do that it, it puts everything very much into stark perspective as to what it actually means for people and puts it in a very real way that everyone can kind of understand at, at best it will you know become something that's relatable and people can understand at worst it becomes one of those things where um we can go we told you so when it happened and hope that it acts as a, that additional kind of kick up the arse to get us moving faster and further at a later point the desperation to prove one of your predictions correct. <laughs> yeah, so, so, for example, you live in west coast of Canada, next to Seattle, Vancouver. They, they had virtually 50 degrees. Those, those houses there don't have air conditioning. They're, they're not built with that in mind. If you live in Texas, then maybe you're ready to adapt to that already. But if you live, if you live on the American-Canadian border, and you've had 49.2 degrees and, and it's going to happen again in two years time and it's going to happen again in five years time what what's the plan like the, the netherlands has a plan at least yeah uh, it, it, it may be a bit depressing but they are going to deal with it better than we are going to deal with it in the uk and they're probably going to deal with it better than they're going to deal with it in northern america where with our uh, economic system the, the wealthy may adapt better and they may get away with it for a bit longer. Because as I mentioned earlier, those California wildfires, those rich film stars and business owners, they, they had other mansions to move into. But those the people who, you know, with the people who lived with the cleaners and the chauffeurs, that, that they won't be able to adapt. That, that, like they may be living in communal communities and they won't be able to adapt. But at some point, everyone's going to be affected in the same way. So I don't know what Canada's plan is. I don't know what America's plan is. I know our plan is very confused. Uh, there are lots of, there are some good policies, but I don't think as a society, we've kind of got the grasp that the reshaping society has to be radical and like from top to bottom. There's still a sense that technology will save us all, but electric cars still have, have so much embedded carbon in them that they're not much better than like, diesel cars from an environmental point of view. Like, I, I see ads for SUVs saying how sustainable they are, that like, they're electric. Well, they're only sustainable if they're in a car club and seven people have access to them and they use they drive each two or three times a week. Like individual car use is is still incompatible with averting the worst parts of the flight emergency. Is, is that too controversial for you, Corey? Uh, should I turn that down? Uh, I, I know I know you're still afraid to talk about the LTN, so 
<laughs> but I, I think quite. So, so the evidence so, says that, but obviously saying that to society in the UK that actually as a householder, you, you shouldn't own a car it is unthinkable to most people. So, so the, the, the politics of action or inaction has, has led us to this point and the science is, is clearly saying we need to radically reshape, but we, we can't agree what radically reshaping is. You, there's, there's sort of two problems, I suppose, on the political level, aren't they? One of them, which I think we talked about when um, we talked about the Net Zero report that I think the Institute of Government did, is that you've got lots of different government departments are acting almost in, in silos and not really having net zero emissions as a concrete goal. And you can see that with, say, I suppose, North Sea drilling. You can see that with reopening no coal building. mines. You can see it with, I think, Quasi-Quateng meeting with fossil fuel executives much more often than he does with renewable energy sources. So you've kind of got that issue. You've probably then got the other issue, which is you can tell from elections. So it, we talked about this in the podcast with Patrick on the Canadian elections last week about how actually one of the reasons Justin Trudeau could well have a massive majority, so this could all be dated. Um, but one of the reasons why he was struggling in the polls is because he promised action on climate change that then wasn't delivered. So I think on the one hand, as you've said, you, you've and as you say, voters in Germany maybe didn't expect to be on the front line of the climate crisis now are. There's a widened acceptance stuff needs to happen and there's a widened awareness of environmental issues. But does that then translate into voting for a government who would enact those policies. So in other words, like how do you solve the planet and win elections, Steve? Yeah, and, and so to start off with a, at least a bit more of a positive note is that when you look at, at least in the UK, um, when you look at, you know, what are the most important issues that that are that, that government should be focusing on and things like that, like actually global warming, climate change is actually like pretty, pretty high up there these days with, with an awful lot of peak respondents saying that it should be a priority excellent good thing it implies that as, as you say people are more interested in trying to find solutions to it that said there is something around the discourse about um kind of like those solutions as you said where it's not it doesn't talk about you know how we need to radically shape shape society for the most part it's been based around like in individuals taking responsibility for their own carbon footprint so it's like, you know, make sure you turn the lights off, um, lower your um, uh, lo lo lower the heating on your uh, on, on your central heating by a couple of degrees to, you know, burn less and save money, all of those sorts of things. I've, I've no idea to what extent this is an actual thing, but I stumbled across something online this morning, which was uh, about somebody suggesting that we bring back the Wombles and make them the face of um, like climate change in Britain because uh, of the kind of like the good messages that they had and, and, and things like that. No idea how accurate that is as a, an actual thing or if it was just Twitter discourse, but it's very much kind of like still, still that very same thing. Cause like, if you look at what the Wombles did, they just cleaned up after themselves and kind of like cleaned up their own little area and things like that. It's not, there's nothing in the discourse that says, how do we like, let's, let's use Birmingham as an example. How do you re rebuild Birmingham more or less from the ground up so that it's a city based around public transport rather than cars. And, you know, there's work that's going on around that obviously, but it's, it's a very big task political parties like the Greens, they have a bit of a habit of kind of like falling into kind of like 
certain types of nimbyism, which means they don't end up backing public transport and, and things like that. So even amongst you know people who place environmentalism as something as very important to them, they're not necessarily talk, talking about the right things either. So you have a very you have a gap in the discourse of, of, of how we talk about these things. And part of that is because it's scary. Like to say, you know, we need to make radical changes to the way um, we structure our society and the way we live is absolutely terrifying. But there are ways to make that and make it potentially more, more um, to, to potentially make it appealing in, in, in some form. But at the moment, no one's doing it, at least in the UK. Oh, I'm not a fan of Boris Johnson on many things, but the one thing he is very much in favour of is cycling. And uh, during the first lockdown, the Conservatives were very good on promoting cycling and telling local councils to build things like low traffic neighbourhoods and and fund things like uh, cycle lanes. So the, the the thoughts are there. It's just can you can you convince a majority of people that these actions are needed? One of the points that you made that was very important, Steve, is that the focus has been on individual actions and not on global corporations. So they, they feed into each other. So you need to do both. Like people turning their heating down by two degrees means you need to burn less fossil fuels overall. But the fossil fuel companies have had such a strong stranglehold on knowledge and money and power that it's very hard to fight that ongoing consistently so like when we had almost had fracking like economically fracking didn't make sense so that's why that ultimately failed but like that was a fossil fuel company trying to enforce its will and usually it gets its own way so we do need to question what we do like you know flying less eating less meat but you also need to figure out how corporations also need to change so where you have amazon having a climate pledge well next day delivery that that's a massive massive contributor to co2 emissions right there how are you going to square that round hole i think to be fair boris johnson's doing his best to make sure that we can't have things like next day delivery on the point about companies though so, i mean there's figures from a few years ago but two-thirds of the of the fossil fuel consumption that's taken place since the industrial age was produced by just 90 companies and mostly 90 fossil fuel companies so i feel the problem of if we're going to talk about what individuals can do then that misses the point slightly because actually this isn't about me leaving the lights on this is about an industry which made a lot of money by burning a lot of stuff and I suppose the answer to that, I suppose, is the Green New Deal recently, hasn't it? Where at least there's a sort of there's a coherent argument there about how this isn't just about cutting carbon emissions. This is also about power and about industrial relations. When it comes to like the industrial industrial side of things, like like yeah, it's like that. Those ninety businesses that are responsible for for most of it but it's like that it's, it's also the fact down to the fact that there are specific um sectors which and and this is very much uh, which which aren't able to decarbonize currently because we haven't got alternatives to it and governments aren't necessarily throwing money at them in a way that's actually 
meaningful to, to help them try and develop that alternative. I think it's concrete, for instance, something that's like, you know, ubiquitous all over the world. It's got a huge carbon footprint to, to produce. Um, and there's no de- low carbon way to do it or decarbonized way to do it. Um, and yeah, it doesn't necessarily seem like it's the sort of thing which people are like, like governments are kind of looking at because they see it, as you say, it's part of that individual problem rather than, you know, a, a collective one. Are you saying me the concrete proposal? Oh, I knew something was up. I saw the glint in your eye when you came up with that pun. Just, oh. And there's the third time of existential despair on this episode. Did you have anything to add to that, Shaz? Just while Steve sort of hyperventilates in the corner. So something I wanted to go back to was the, um, just in terms of the, the sort of irreversible nature of it, um, partly in terms of rising sea levels, but also one, one of the, again, frightening things, I think, in the report is you were talking about these sort of extreme weather events. The report talks about how you'd have, say, hot temperature extremes where you, the sort of extreme temperature that in the 19th century would happen once every 10 years is now at present going to occur, occur sort of about 2.8 times every 10 years. And if global warming it, temperatures rise by 2 degrees, it'd end up being 5.6 times every 10 years. So... It's just it's it's frightening things like that where um, and even so also um, the sort of extreme temperature that would happen once every fifty years um, in the nineteenth century at the present is now occurring about four point eight times uh, more likely so that's now that's the le- that's without if if somehow magically global temperature stayed at the level it was. There's there's more figures about precipitation and monsoons, but frankly, they're they're quite terrifying. The, the important point you made there, Corey, is that it it is getting worse, but I don't think that's sunk into the public consciousness yet. So we know things are happening and they're bad, and that things do need to change, but I don't think it's sunk into the public consciousness that yet. That if we if we stop doing everything tomorrow, things will still get worse. That that forty nine point two degrees in Canada will still happen again, even if the, so. Like for example, during COVID and the first lockdown, everybody stopped going everywhere, but carbon emissions didn't actually fall that dramatically, even though individuals did stop moving dramatically. Like industry still happened and lots of other things still happened, but we we we're not making that link that irreversible means mitigation already so so like there's stopping emissions uh, improving existing infrastructure but we're not talking about flood defenses as we should be doing flood defenses before there are floods Uh, so when floods happen in the UK we then go and dig some more holes and hope it gets better what we should be doing is digging some holes before the floods happen because we know they're going to happen and they're going to happen every couple of years now in really bad spots where floodplains have been covered with housing. What we need to do is mitigate whilst we still can. And I don't think that has sunk into the public consciousness yet, that 
even if we reduce emissions, we still need to plan for what is inevitable. I've just started reading Shutdown, which is Antusi's book on the last 18 months of nonsense. And um, he talks about how uh, the sort of coronavirus isn't a black swan. It's not a, an event you couldn't see. Actually, it was a, uh, a really unexpected event that you just didn't think would happen. He talks about a, a grey rhino. I'd never, I, I didn't, I'd never heard of grey rhinos in relation to black swans. A grey rhino is a, a massive event, which is, it would have huge implications, but actually is quite easy to see happening because of essentially the way society structures to the fact that you've had um, the human society in in messing more with nature, more human animals sort of interacting, especially in sort of tropical areas, some sort of mutation in coronavirus was likely to happen. And I suppose it's a similar thing with a lot of the worst effects of climate change, as you're saying, it's like a lot of the flooding, a lot of the high temperatures. We have kind of a whole herd of grey rhinos sort of ambling towards us, but it could be quite hard to do the planning, do the, the stockpiling for that. And I think Steve and I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how part of the first wave of austerity cuts were about actually getting rid of things like the pandemic preparedness funds and stockpiling that was there um so it's <clears throat> you still got the inability usually of democracies to cope with existential crises on top of i suppose a lot of the spending restraint we've had which means <clears throat> there isn't that sort of proactive um prevention in place yeah and also that there's contradictory actions that need to take place as well so i'll keep going back to the, the canada example because it's a relevant and easy to refer to. So what do you do? Do you put air conditioning in all these houses in Vancouver that don't have them already? Do you, but then you're then exacerbating emissions as, as you know, air conditioning is a massive emitter. If you don't, then these people are going to suffer and more people will die every couple of years. It's really hard. So immediate mitigations may contradict long-term carbon emission reductions if I can ask a stupid question for a second, is there a way of cooling a house down that doesn't involve air conditioning? Oh, you, you could build it so it's like really open. So if you go to Thailand, for example, you have lots of like open houses that are built out of wood and just they're designed to let airflow through. You don't have central heating, you have like fans instead. But, but, uh, but then in Thailand, you'd expect it to be 30 degrees all the time mm. we're still expecting there to be really cold winters in Canada and it to be really snowy at points so how are you going to do how are you going to do both uh, fundamentally that's kind of like your core um issue there is that b- b- before all of this you were you had a situation where uh, let's use a slightly different example let's use Texas which is you know only needed to really learn how to deal with like heat because just of where it is and and, and the climate that's that, that's in that area now is suddenly having to deal with more blizzards and not heavy snowfall and things like that and lo and, lo and behold Kelsey Freeze, they're not prepared to deal with that but they will probably need to be able to but as you say the to be able to prepare for two separate kind of like polar opposites of weather, it it can be very very hard to to to, to do, especially when you're 
we're working from the perspective of like you've got budgets to just do x amount of things so even if you have say a a situation where you know you've got people who genuinely are taking this seriously want to do their absolute best and and and, and everything they've only got so much money to to do anything with what are they going to end up prioritizing well they'll prioritize the thing that comes up the most often so in texas that's still heat in canada that's still the snow and the and, and the cold but when those other events do happen then you get have just these uh, uh these just sharp 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 contrasts which just highlight in in, in many ways just the dangers in all of this mm-hmm.